0: All right, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, going to be this morning. If you have a Bible on you this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. <clears throat> if you forgot your Bible, didn't bring a Bible, then g- grab one of these. If you don't own a Bible, for sure, take one of these as our gift to you and turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, and what we're going to do for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the Psalms. We're going to be unpacking a, a few different psalms for the next few weeks. Now, now here's the thing. When, when you start to open up the psalms, you, you kind of get that. I don't know if you grew up in the church tradition I did where every summer was summer in the psalms, right? You kind of did the psalms in the summer. And you get this idea that, that summer and psalms is kind of easygoing and, and psalms are kind of these flaky poems The emo, hipster people sitting in coffee shops would write psalms, right? And it's cool for those worshipy people, it's cool for those artsy people, but like when stuff is really hard, when stuff is difficult in my life, singing's not the first thing that comes to my mind. I think musicals are weird that way. Do you know like you watch a musical, it's just odd if you really think about it? Like The Greatest Showman, great movie, but but just weird, they just start singing, right? Like we'd be creeped out if if at your job site some guy just puts his hammer in his tool belt and starts busting out in song, right? You'd be like, I'm not working next to that guy anymore, right? I even think, like, like uh, uh, Sound of Music. He, he, you know, like, the plot of the Sound of Music is what? The, the Von Trapp family, they're running from the Nazis. Okay, it is, like, fearful and scary, running from the Nazis, and they bust out in, Doe a deer, a female deer. What? what did, uh, right? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem real. But here's the thing. Here's why I love the Psalms. I love the Psalms because they're as real as it gets. The theology that we read about in the Psalms is not a textbook theology, it's not just a a classroom theology. When you get into the Psalms, you get into deep, deep parts, hidden parts of your heart. You start to see emotions unpacked, you start to see motives unpacked, you start to see how the human heart really works. It's it's really this. I would say the Psalms are, are theology applied very deeply in some seriously raw language. Now, now you won't catch the raw language. You won't catch the rawness of the psalms if you only catch snippets of it, the things that they're going to put on on coffee mugs or on greeting cards, right? Those psalms, those are kind of nice and stuff, but if you just start reading through the psalms, like reading them through verse by verse, every verse, you're going to see tears and doubts and angers and fears and frustration. And as you spend time in the psalms, you begin to see... A biblical way for us to respond to these deep emotions. How do we respond to fear, to doubt, to tears, to brokenness, to anger? I mean, the, the normal way we, we, we have to deal with emotions, typically it's one of two ways that we can be taught how to deal with emotions. You, you can have the one way, I call more the religious way, kind of the, the church way typically, is keep those emotions to yourself, man. Don't expose those. And so we're uncomfortable with emotion. And so we hide it, we deny it, we control it. There's this fear that if if my emotions are exposed, then I'm in trouble. Now, why would I say it's religious? I mean religious in this sense. If, If it's religious in the sense of I need to do all these good works, I need to live in a perfect way in order for God to accept me. And so it's all in my own strength that I make this happen. So if there's, if there's dark and deep feelings in your heart, then what do you do? You hide them. You deny them. You, you control them. You're, you're, you're always saying, oh, no, no, I'm not angry. I'm fine. And you hold the emotions down deep. And the other way we're told, instead of denying them and suppressing them, the culture tells us, no, don't deny them, like let them out, like let them lead the way, and, and, and we treat our emotions like they're our identity. The way you feel is who you are. Your feelings, not your beliefs, not your principles, not even the way you actually live your life, your feelings are your real you, and so the end game then is get in touch with your feelings. Embrace your feelings. Be controlled by your feelings. Like, just go with your heart. Now, the Psalms don't do either of those two things. They give us a whole different way of dealing with feelings, with emotions that run deep. And the Psalms, for sure, are not detached and cold when it comes to emotions. But they're also not just venting them and expressing them however they want either. You're going to see the rawness of fears and tears and hurts and angers and, and, and emotion, but the, the psalmist, they're not just sitting around talking about their feelings. It's not academic, but it's also not just 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 puking out your feelings. No, no what you're going to see in the psalms is they take those deep feelings and they pray those feelings not denying them and not overwhelmed by them, but they're bringing those very feelings fully expressed into the throne room of God. They're bringing them under the truth of the gospel. And so this week, as we we dig into a few psalms, we're gonna talk this morning about our tears. What do we do with pain and sorrow? What do we do with our tears? Now, Now, we're starting with tears for this reason. It's the most popular psalm you're gonna read. When you divide up the Psalms into categories, theologians would call Psalms of Tears, they call them Psalms of Lament. They're the most popular genre of Psalms in the Bible. More psalms of lament than any other kind. And so, and so we're gonna start there. And with, with that idea, with with the Psalms of Lament being so many, here's our first point as we jump into Psalm 126: we will all have tears we're all gonna have tears. It's a common experience. In fact, let's read the first few verses as we dig into Psalm 126, it says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us we are glad. Now what what the writers talking about here what the psalmist is talking about we're not really exactly sure what he's what he specifically is referring to a lot of scholars would say that he's probably talking about when they were rescued from Babylonian captivity. Right, for 70 years, they were, they were captured. They were overtaken by Babylon. The Babylonians took the best of them. Remember when you read about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That was the Babylonian captivity. They're taking the best of the best. They're bringing them into captivity. They destroyed Jerusalem. And for 70 years, they cried out to God for deliverance. When they're finally set free, they come back to Jerusalem, and it is in ruins. You read the book of Nehemiah. You read about them returning from the Babylonian captivity. And it, it may have been that. That might be what the, what the psalmist is talking about. He's remembering the joy of that. Whatever it was, it caused a huge celebration. I mean, the, the restoration was, was big enough that they, they knew, oh, this was God. This is not us. We didn't do this. This was God who did this. I mean, even other nations looking in, they're looking in going, the Lord's done good things for those people. That had to be God. It was so big they were saying, this is like a dream. We, we would say, this is too good to be true or, or pinch me, I think I'm dreaming. Like this is, this is better than we ever could have imagined. But then look at verse four. As the psalmist is, is talking about this, remembering the great things, verse four says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's our situation now though. So, so you start reading verses one to three, you think their situation is joy and, and, and restoration, but actually they're, they're talking about being in the Negev. Now, what's the Negev? It's this part in Israel that is wilderness. Pure wilderness. Now, I gotta tell you, when I used to read scripture and, and see, hear that word wilderness, you think about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, I would put it in my context of wilderness. And I would think, I love the wilderness, I love to canoe and kayak and hike and, man, wilderness. Why are they complaining so much? That would be awesome to go on a 40-year camping trip. Okay, maybe not 40 years, right? But the idea of wilderness seems pretty cool. Uh, that's not the wilderness. I mean, if you actually see what the wilderness of Israel looks like, it's horrible. There's nothing, it's nothing enjoyable about it at all. It's this des- deserted, dead, awful Barren, lifeless place. It's, it's horrible. You're not taking vacations there. Now, we don't know why they're in such a terrible spot. We don't, we don't know whether, while the psalmist is writing this, was it a literal famine? Were they literally in the desert? Or, or, or is he talking in poetic language, saying, The experience I'm going through right now, it's like a desert like experience? We don't know, but we know that their life was upside down. That's why our first point is this we will all have tears. We should expect wilderness experiences. I think as Christians, we, we get this false belief wrapped around. We get this, this bad theology taught to us that says, if you walk in obedience, if you just do your devos and go to church and you pray and you give, then your life will be so good. It'll be just so blessed. And what do we mean by blessed? We, we mean everything will be easy. We'll, we'll have prosperity, we'll have good health. Here in the Psalms, or you read this Psalm here, and there's there's no mention of sin and repentance. It's not like these people were walking in sin and then all of a sudden they're calling out for God, we're sorry that we got ourselves into this desert again. Would you redeem us in your grace? It's just, no, we're in a wilderness. So what's that mean as we read this? That man, we'll all have tears. It it means this. It means that this idea of of a good Christian will will always have great health, good times, prosperity, that if life is hard, it must be sin in your life. It's junk theology. It's just flat out wrong. Now, now, does sin bring trials? For sure it does. But as Christians, we, we have to understand something. We live in a broken world. And we also know this, that God at times brings the ones he loves into the wilderness. I mean, think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. They're they're rescued out of Egypt. They're redeemed, set free finally. What does God do? This awesome deliverance, right? The Red Sea parts, they walk through, delivered from Pharaoh. They walk out into the wilderness and they end up where? They end up at Mount Sinai. Now, if you look at a map, and you see the Red Sea, and you see the promised land where they're getting to, if you took a straight line, Mount Sinai's not on that line. God took them uh, over 300 kilometers out of the way. If God opened up a travel agency, epic fail, right? He would not be great at a travel he, like, But you gotta think, okay, wait a minute, he's God. Does he not know what the straightest distance is? Of course he does. If he wanted to, he, he, he could have given them the law, not at Mount Sinai. He, he could have given it right, right by the Jordan rivers they are crossing into the promised land. And, and how often do we find ourselves in a wilderness experience, and we look at the map of our life, and we say, uh, God, what are you doing? Don't you know where I am? Don't you know where I'm trying to get to? And we begin to doubt his goodness, we begin to doubt his love, and, And we forget this truth again. God often leads those he loves into the wilderness. He led the Israelites into the wilderness. He led Paul into the wilderness. He led Jesus into the wilderness. Why? I believe that God wants to take us to these these places of tears and trials for a reason. He told the Israelites as they were at Mount Sinai, they spent about three years before they got to the edge of the promised land. And he kept telling them as they're getting closer to the promised land, he kept saying, be careful, don't forget. Don't forget that I redeemed you from Egypt. Don't forget it was by my hand that I, I rescued you. Don't forget that I fed you manna every day. Don't forget that I was the one who cared for you because when you get into this place of milk and honey and luxury, the temptation is gonna be to forget God and begin to think, I'm awesome. Look at what I accomplish. Now I think God's really saying this, listen, there's actually more danger in the place of milk and honey than there is in the desert and scorpions. He's saying, don't, don't forget, you need to remember. Remember that, that you, you were helpless and hopeless, but I took care of you. I would say this, I, I would say the time of wilderness is not about being lost It's not a detour any more than going to see the doctor is a detour from from having good health. God has a purpose in these times of wilderness and God was humbling them and, and teaching them before they get to this place of luxury to be intensely and deeply aware of their complete and total dependence on him. Hebrews 12 11, it talks about discipline, and I I would insert the word wilderness in there, and that wilderness is not easy. It's never easy when you're in the wilderness. But Hebrews 12:11 says it's it's for our good, and we're trained by it. We're, we're humbled by it, we're made dependent by it, and you find those who are trained under trials and in tears are the ones who are the most thankful, most free. No matter where the journey leads, even into tears. I mean, you, you think about the Israelites, they, they come out of, out of Egypt, they spend the time at Mount Sinai, God gives them the law, they get to the edge of the promised land, and they send spies. And remember the story? They send these spies into the promised land, and you've got 10 spies and two spies that, that go in. There's 12 spies, but, but two come out Joshua and Caleb, and these guys come out with this report about the promised land, going, It is awesome! It's everything God promised. Now, now there's there's the armies are huge, but God promises this. Man, it's ours. Let's go. God has this. God has given us this land. And then then the other ten spies they go, "Uh -uh, wait, uh, like we saw the same thing. But um, you gotta understand something. Those armies are are huge. They said we're like grasshoppers to them. And I can imagine Joshua and Caleb looking at each other, looking at Moses, going. What? Did did we not see God part the Red Sea? Did He not give us manna every day? We're fed in the wilderness for like three years. Like what? What are you talking about? And the people agreed with the ten. And really in that moment, I think what they did is they proved that those, those nearly three years of training wasn't enough. They had not gotten where God had wanted to be. They hadn't gotten to that place of remembering his care. They hadn't gotten to that place of, of complete and humble dependence on God. And they literally said in that moment, they said, our lives would have been better if we never followed you. God sends them back into the wilderness for 40 years. They missed the lessons. They, they missed what God's purpose was in them to humble them and, and to, to show how much he cared for them. To, so they learned to trust in him. Listen, if you are walking with God, you will find yourself in the wilderness at times. If you're walking with God, you will find yourself with eyes filled with tears. Maybe, maybe even crying more tears now that you know God. As you grow deeper in your walk with God, you may find you have more tears. Tears of brokenness, tears that wouldn't have come before but now as you see hurt in other people, the tears come more freely to you. As your heart's more softened to the gospel. Jesus himself was described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So I, I think it's kind of weird for us, if that's who Jesus was, it'd be weird for us as Christ followers to say, I want to be like Jesus, and so I believe as long as I'm walking close with God, that, that I, I shouldn't have any sorrow. I would say that Jesus, God the Son, was walking pretty closely with God the Father, and he experienced some significant hardships. Here's the problem. If we don't get this first point, if we don't understand that all of us will have tears, we're gonna be burdened with an unbearable weight. Because not only are you gonna be burdened with the, the, the struggle that causes those tears, you add on to that burden an unbearable weight of doubting God's goodness. Of looking for that answer. Why is God letting this happen to me? I shouldn't be crying. I shouldn't be weeping. And, and you're going to sink under that weight. Having the weight that caused the, the tears in the first place is, is just about unbearable. When you add in those other burdens... That, that goofy life narrative that, that says that, that God must have abandoned you if you're in sorrow, it's a weight we can't bear. And so what do we do then? What do we do when the tears come? What do we do when the wilderness and the trials come? Joshua and Caleb at the edge of the promised land said, we can trust God. It's not going to be easy, but, but we've, been, we've been shown that we can trust God. And the, the psalmist here says the same thing. We can trust our tears to the Lord. So our second point, our last point this morning is this. I bring my tears to the Lord. I bring my tears to the Lord. Now that that begins in a place of trust though. You're not gonna bring your tears to a God you don't trust. Trust that he understands. Trust that he's gracious. Trust that he can bring sorrow and turn it into joy. Look at verse five and six. Psalmist says this, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We see the imagery here. This is a farming imagery. Obviously, the farmer goes out and plants seeds and after a season, returns with sheaves, returns with the produce of those seeds that are growing. But the imagery here, it's, it's, it's weird because he doesn't just go out with seeds. The farmer's going out and, and sowing tears. You're planting your tears. Get the picture of, of what the psalmist is calling us to here. It, it means this. Remember our two choices that we do with our deep feelings? You don't hold on to the seeds. You don't hold on to your tears. If, if you just hold on to them, nothing's planted. And if nothing's planted, nothing grows. There's no harvest of joy. But you also don't take the other option. You don't just take the seeds and throw them wherever and whenever and just spread them everywhere. You don't don't take a big bag of seeds as a farmer and walk out in the field and just blah, dump the whole bag in the middle and walk away, thinking that's gonna grow really good, right? You can't hide your tears, you can't ignore them. You also can't just dump them out. You have to plant them where they can grow and produce a harvest of joy. Now, are you catching what the psalmist is saying? The psalmist is saying, I didn't catch this until I was studying this and actually it brought light to another verse I wanna share with you as well. The psalmist is saying that the, the tears planted produce joy. I mean, I get this idea that my, joy, my, my sorrow, my tears at, at a time, they're gonna give way to joy, that in eternity, the tears will be no more, right? And we will have joy, it will be replaced. But he's saying here, no, 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 no. The tears actually planted well produce joy. He's saying that, that in the gospel, when we, when we plant our seeds in the remembrance of, of God's redeeming and God's rescue, when we plant our tears, they produce joy. I think that's why Paul says this, and here's where this, this other verse just, just had whole new meaning for me, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians four seventeen, where he says, our light and momentary troubles are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now I used to always think that you, you measure them out, and as you, you weigh your sorrows, well, this, this eternal weight of glory is so much more. So, so I mean, I can't even compare to the sorrow that I have, but, but hear what else he's saying: that that sorrow is actually producing in us a joy. We're not just waiting for the sorrow to go away. It's, it's doing something. It's glorifying something in us. It's changing us. It's, it's bringing a harvest of joy into our hearts. But listen, listen, when we plant them in the gospel, we don't just dump them out. We don't hide them. We plant them in the gospel. So, so what's it look like to plant our tears in the gospel, plant our sorrows, our trials, our troubles? Well, what it means is this. You come before God with your feelings, with the brokenness, with the hurt and the pain and the anger and the tears, and you bring them before God in prayer. I mean, that, that's what psalms are. Yes, they're songs, but they're songs of prayer. You're praying these prayers of trust in your tears where you bring the pain under the gospel again. Because as you see sorrow, as you see pain, as you see hurt, you have a choice. I either run out from under the care and the hope I have in the gospel, I run out to pursue other things, try to avoid it, forget it, cover it up, go after something else that hopefully will bring joy in my life instead of this sorrow I feel, or, or or I can place myself under the hope I have in the gospel, under God's care. The gospel covering the sorrow, the the gospel showing me God's grace on the cross that, that secures my identity, secures my eternity. So what do you do? You plant your tears in his grace. We remember his grace. I love how the psalm starts. The psalm begins, this person who's writing the psalm says we are in sorrow, When he gets to verse four, but the first three verses are remember God's goodness. Remember his rescue. And so what do we do in tears? We come back to the gospel again. God, you saved me. God, I was lost and broken in my sin. God, I was blind and naked and poor. I had nothing good in me, but you stepped in and you redeemed me and you saved me. You've made me your child. I mean, it should cause us like this. Psalm says, man, that's too good to be true. This is like a dream. I can't believe that me, me a person who is more sinful than I'd ever care to admit that God would step in, in his grace, and at that moment would rescue so that now, now in Christ, you could say I'm more loved than I could ever imagine. I mean, is that you this morning? Do you know the gospel that way? Have you given your heart to Christ to say, I'm not doing this on my own anymore. I need Christ. And, and in that moment, you can, you can say, this is my unspeakable joy, that my identity is secure, my eternity is secure. And that in knowing that grace in knowing that God knows your tears, he understands your weeping, you now can come to him and it's safely to pour out those tears to him. I mean, you read the Psalms and man, you hear deep anguish. They don't pray regular prayers that you would would mostly hear in church. There are are not safe prayers in the Psalms. They bring it all out. They're, They're saying, God, where are you? Why have you left me? Why are you not working in this? Bringing the full pain into the presence of God. In his grace, it's safe to pray like that. Why? Because your anger, your angst, your tears, your sorrow, your worry, it's not supposed to stay stay bound up in your heart. But it's not supposed to be dumped out on other people and on other places and say, you take my feelings, you take my hurt, I'm going to burden you with it now. No, no, the psalmist says, no, bring it into the throne room. Bring it to God. God's saying, bring the anguish to me, it's safe. I understand what it's like to be desperate how can we say that? Because when we remember grace, when we remember the gospel, we also remember the cross. And by seeing the cross, we can see that God understands my anguish because God himself came down to become man. God, the son, Jesus Christ, who became man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In the garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. He says, to the point of death. Like, like this, this anguish is gonna kill me even before I get to the cross. I mean, Jesus knows what it's like to cry out to heaven and get no answer. To cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he hears Nothing. Why can we trust that we can bring our tears to God and God will hear us? Why can we trust that as we plant our tears in the gospel that they'll reap a harvest of joy? How do I know that in the midst of this wilderness that I'm not separated from God? Why? Because when Christ himself said, God, I need you in my tears, the sin that separated us from God now separated him. God turned away from Christ in his anguish. Why? Why? Jesus got the abandonment that we deserved. Jesus calling out, God turns his face away. Why? So he can turn it to us so that, so that even in our sin, now that sin debt has been completely paid. Then now when we cry out, God hears us like we've got Christ's righteousness because Christ took our sin. Jesus took that sin that separates us from God. So when when you put your trust in Christ, when you've come to that moment in your life where you surrendered your life to this truth of the gospel and you said, my religion doesn't get me there, all the stuff I'm trying to do doesn't get me there, these other places I'm running to for hope and joy are 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 not gonna give me hope and joy and you got to that place where you said, I can't do it on my own, I surrender. Christ, I need you. Heaven opened up for you. Now you can let go of that burden of sin and guilt where you're wondering in the midst of sorrow, man, is God punishing me in this? Has he abandoned me in this? No, no, Jesus took the fullness of the wilderness on for us. So why? So that we don't have to. He, He took the exile and the abandonment, why? So that we could come and see a harvest of joy. Listen, if you're in a moment where you're feeling that your sorrow has led you to that place where you feel abandoned in your sorrow or or, or you feel guilt or shame in your sorrow, listen, it's because you haven't planted your tears at the cross. You You haven't come under the gospel where you can say, God, I'm planting these here because I trust you. And I don't see the why of this suffering, but I I recognize that when when Jesus was hanging on the cross, those at that moment looking on, they didn't see the why either. And so I'm I'm gonna plant these tears with patience. And I'm trusting that you're gonna bring a resurrection about in your time. I mean, listen, listen, that, that place of your heart, when you get to that place of planting your tears that way, that brings humility instead of pride. It, it brings trust instead of fear and bitterness. It, it, it brings this, this outward-looking compassion. Even in the midst of your suffering, you can have an outward-looking compassion instead of becoming more self-absorbed in what you're walking through. But we need to train our hearts to remember this. It's why in the Psalm, remember when God did this. It's why God says all through De- Deuteronomy, remember that I'm the one who redeems you and rescues you. Remember my grace, And there's so many of you here this morning that you you could stand up. We could could go on for the rest of today with people standing up talking about, here's a story of God's rescue in my life. Here's my, my marriage that was Restored. Here's the addictions that were broken. Here was the sickness that was healed. Here's the, the, the brokenness, the bitterness, the shame, the sin, the destruction that God turned to wholeness and to joy. I would say this, of all the testimonies that we could share, the greatest testimony any one of us has, if you're a follower of Christ, is remembering the rescue of the cross. Remembering, amen. <laughs> remembering that, that we were lost, but God rescued you that God spoke a different word over you, that God changed you and made you his own. And so what do we do? We remember it. We train our hearts in the gospel. Why? Because the tears will come and we want our hearts trained under the gospel, in the gospel. I would say it this way. I was just reading about that Captain Sully. Remember Captain Sully? He's the guy who who landed that plane on the Hudson River. Did you hear that story? So he's flying a plane into New York, loses an engine, and then the options are this. I crash the plane into New York and kill I don't know how many people, or I figure out how to land this thing on the Hudson River. There's a movie made about him, right? Tom Hanks played him. i think. by the way, never travel with Tom Hanks. Have you noticed all his movies? (laughs) Right? He's hijacked in a ship. He's he crashes on a desert island. He has to land a plane in the Hudson. Apollo thirty. He's lost in space. Even right. Anyway, so come on back. Here we go. So they asked Sully after he lands the plane. After he, I mean, and apparently I was reading about this. Landing a plane in water is ridiculously difficult. If you mess up, if a wing gets messed up at all, it flips you. If you go too low, it doesn't just drag like on the ground. It goes under, and the plane flips, and people die. It is an unbelievably difficult thing, what he did with an engine out. And they asked him, "And how did you do that? And he said, there were split-second decisions I had to be making, thousands of them. He says, but here's what happened. The training I had of landing plane after plane after plane after plane, He goes, it felt like just the training took over so those split second decisions could just happen. It was in the training in the normal that allowed him to land a plane in the chaos. So so what am I saying? I'm saying this, we train ourselves in the gospel. We train ourselves, what does the gospel say about God? What does the gospel say about me? And in that moment, then, when we come into those times of tears and sorrow and wilderness. We've already been training our hearts to ask those questions where we hit that moment of brokenness. And we say, okay, God, who are you in this? Who do you say I am? What does the gospel say about the, what I'm working with and walking with right now? Listen, Joshua and Caleb had been trained. The three years in the wilderness trained their hearts well. So when they saw the struggle, they saw it so much differently than the other 10 spies and the rest of the Israelites. Why? Because they said, well, we know who God is. We've been trained in that. We can trust his promises. We can trust his character. We know who we are. God's loved us, cared for us. He calls us his children. Yeah, we look like grasshoppers. That's part of knowing who you are. I'm dust, I'm nothing, but I serve a God who is sovereign and in control and promises good for me. Sure, we still have weeks that chew us up, but there's a joy when you rest in Christ and Maybe some of you here this morning, you're like, man, I just made it into church this morning. I dragged myself in under the weight of this week. Like, high five me, I'm here, man. Like, I I don't have a lot of this joy, but I do know when I get here that God's working in my heart and there's a rest that I'm finding in him. I know there's so many of you here that you are living your life in such a way in the midst of sorrow that others looking in are saying, the Lord has done something in that person's life. Think about why, why certain people can go through the same trials and have a different response. You see Joshua and Caleb and the other spies. You, you see it in our daily walk of life where, where people experience suffering very differently. And I'm, I'm telling you, the why different responses, a big part of it is this. Have you been trained in the gospel? Like why in a trial, you'll hear someone say, yeah, my outer self is wasting away, but I'm being renewed day by day in my inner self. Then I will see my redeemer that the Lord will prepare a table for me in the wilderness, that, that this suffering is producing in me an eternal weight of glory. I mean, how do you get to that place where, where you have that kind of response in the midst of loss? I believe it's when our hearts are trained in the gospel. It's why we sing the gospel. It's why we, we, we talk the gospel and study the gospel in our homes, in small group, as friends, why we continue to remind ourselves of who God is. Remind ourselves of the cross. Remind ourselves of who we are. So why? So our hearts are trained for when Satan comes to tempt us to despair. And in that midst of that that temptation, we can say, I see God's grace. I see the cross. I see my assurance of glory. It may take time for these tears to, to be produced a harvest of joy. Farming's not fast. I love that that's the illustration the psalmist used. It's not take your seeds and put them in the microwave for 60 seconds and they'll produce, no, right? It's, it's sow them in the ground and I don't know how long it's gonna take but look at verse six again. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing might come home with shouts of joy. Does it say that? That's why you gotta have your Bible open. I could lie to you right now. Does it say might? No, it doesn't, right? It doesn't say possibly will. It doesn't say, say who knows but it might turn out for joy. What's it say? It says, the one who, come, one who goes bearing the seed for joy shall come home with shouts of joy. I think in our sorrow, we can get hit by our sorrow. C.S. Lewis said it this way. When, when he lost his wife, he said, in the midst of grief, he said, how come no one didn't tell me that grief would feel a lot like fear? And he started to fear that maybe God didn't care. Maybe the pain will never stop. Maybe I'll never Reap a harvest of joy again. I like this quote from Eugene Peterson, his book on the Psalms, he says this. He he says, the Psalms teach us that any prayer, no matter how desperate in its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, it ends up in praise. It doesn't always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. And verse two says that, that their mouths were filled with praise. It overflowed in joy. Worship was the response. Why? Because they remembered the redemption of God. As the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, my question is this. How have you trained your heart? So when the difficulty comes, so naturally you'll be able to say, man, I have no evidence that God will abandon me. As I face this battle, I see in the cross that that God has me as his own. And I'm not putting my hope in myself. I know that I can't do this on my own. I'm not gonna place my hope in other people or other things, but I'm gonna put my hope in God, in his promises, in a gospel that speaks a different word over my circumstances. How have you trained your heart for that? Maybe right now you're not in a place of, well, I'm training in time for, waiting for. Maybe right now you're in the midst of tears. What's it look like for for you even this morning to sow those tears? Bring them to the Lord in fullness. Not holding them back, saying, here they are, and sowing them under the gospel. And trust that God's gonna bring a harvest of joy. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I I pray that even now, Lord, you would even help us with how to do this. Help us to know how how to bring the tears to your throne room. Help us know how to bring our hearts under the gospel. Help us know how to cry our tears out to you. Help us see that we're not abandoned. That we're not left alone. That we're not forgotten. God, I've seen you show up time and time again in the midst of wilderness, in the midst of tears. I've seen you bring hope and joy. I've seen you restore brokenness. Father, I pray that that would be the prayer of each of our hearts, that not only have we seen it as we look around others' lives, but, but God, that for those here who know you, that we could say, I've experienced it because I've experienced the cross, that I've been redeemed. So, God, with hearts trained like that, we could even look at the wilderness we're facing and say, God, I can't wait to see what you're gonna do with this. Lord, that you would use these tears I'm sowing right now and you'd produce an eternal weight of glory. That you'd be glorified, God. That you would change me. That there'd be a harvest of joy even now. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.